All right, there we go. Um, so we are uh, we are in our second week, starting into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, spend a little time studying that. So we're going to be in. We just finished the first fifteen chapters of Mark last week, along with kind of an introduction to it. And and so uh, one of the things Scott talked about last week is our process, our what we call kind of our hermeneutical process. The way we walk through a text to make sure that we understand and see what's going on. And so he showed you that the first place we start when we're reading the scriptures is with the Bible times. What did it mean when it was written? And we call this, we're kind of looking for the aim, that is the author's intended meaning. So I'm not trying to figure out what does this passage mean to me? Um, or, or how do I read this? What do I feel like God wants to say to me? I'm trying to figure out what was Mark when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit trying to communicate to his listeners when he wrote this. And so we got to do the hard work of doing uh, background stuff and reading in context and all those things um, as we kind of understand. And once we kind of get a grasp of what this is, then we make the move up into the timeless truths and principles of the text. So, so what are the big picture things that, the, that this text is saying to us? And, and what do other passages in the Bible say about this truth in this text? So on our nights, we divide our time up um, our study up into two halves. Um, one of us will get up at the beginning and we will walk all through this, looking for the author's intended meaning, trying to make sure that we have a solid grasp on the text itself. And then a second person will step up here and they will start to work through a larger theme or truth that we find in that text and then break that down as we see that throughout Scripture, as we see that in church history, however you want to describe that. And then usually we'll try to end here, which is applying the truths that we saw. Once we kind of see this timeless truth and pull it out, applying that truth to our life. Here's, let me give you a real, real quick, I wasn't planning on doing this, but let me give you a really, really quick example of why this process is necessary. So Jesus says um, to his disciples, one of his uh, teachings that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount is, if your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. Right, so, so what we want to do when we read this is we want to make sure we could just go from here right to here or technically just go right here, which would mean everybody go ahead and grab a knife and start cutting away, right? Because that's, that's what it says, so that's what we do. But that's not how we go about reading the scriptures. We want to make sure that we do the hard work. When you recognize that the rabbis had a tradition of using hyperbole to teach, then we go, okay, so that's what was going on here. The timeless truth is you do whatever is necessary to avoid sin. You do whatever is necessary to grow in righteousness. Then when I take that, then I can move that into our time. So what does pluck your eye out mean when it comes to here and around in our times? It might mean taking the computer out of my bedroom because I'll do whatever it takes to not lead myself into sin. It might mean not going, woo, not going to, sorry, I don't know what's uh, um. Not, not ending up or hanging out with a specific group of people that I know every time I'm around them draw me towards sin. So this is what happens when we do the process, and this is what we're trying to do here. Now, one of the most important parts, no, I'll say, I won't say one of the most important, the most important aspect of finding the author's intended meaning, finding what the Bible is trying to say, the most important aspect of biblical interpretation is context reading the Bible in context and making sure that we read, when we read a passage that we're seeing what it says in the larger story and in what it's talking about. Here's the good news about this is you don't have to have a Bible degree to be able to read in context. You don't have to be a theologian to be able to read in context. All you got to do is just read a little further down. Read a little bit before what you just read. That's all you got to do. Um, but it's, it's really easy for us to forget that sometimes. When it comes to things like epistles, what we tend to do is to divorce verses from one another. Um, because the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, have so much kind of solid content in each little verse that it can be easy for us to just pull them apart and focus on that one little verse there. And so you get Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Put that thing on a mug, that's going to inspire me, right? Every time I drink my coffee, I can do all things. But, but what we want to make sure we do is not take that verse out of its context. We want to read the larger context of Philippians 4. What was Paul saying when he said that? What did he mean? What does that verse mean in the context that he's saying? 
Here's how it works with Gospels. With Gospels, we don't so much divorce the verses from themselves because the Gospels come to us in story form. So generally, we know to read like a story at a time. But what we can tend to do in the Gospels, and I'm very guilty of this, is divorce the stories from each other and just read a story as though it's just a story that's by itself. It's okay to read a story by itself, but recognize that the gospel writers generally have a reason for placing verses or placing stories next to one another. It's not always as simple as chronology. Well, this happened after this, and this happened after this. There's a lot of that, but a lot of times their phrasing and their language is used to tie these stories together to tell something bigger. We get to see a little bit of that tonight in Mark 1. So if you're not already there, go ahead and open up Mark One, let me read to you the last two verses of last week's passage, if we're going to read in context. This is what we finished with last week, and this is what sets up our passage today. Mark 1, 14-15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is how this ends. The time is at hand. The kingdom is near. We talked a lot about the kingdom last week and what that meant in that context, what that means for us today. So so that kind of moves us to where we are. It says that after John the Baptist was arrested, that Jesus went up into Galilee. Here is how the area of Palestine was broken down back then into three major regions. You had Judea, and this is where the heart of kind of the Jewish people was. Jerusalem, the capital city, the, the political center, and the religious center. I say, I guess, sort of the political center. For the Jews, it was the political center, but the Romans were actually kind of overseeing this place. But, um, so this is where kind of the heart of it was, and this is where a lot of the later half of Mark will take place. And then here is, the, is Samaria, where the Samaritans, half Jewish, half Gentile, kind of consider these half-breeds by the Jews, lived right in the middle of them. Galilee is up north, and it's kind of considered out in the country, all right, out in the hills. This is, this is the Arkansas of Palestine right here, okay? And so, and, and I totally, I totally mean complete offense when I say that. So, um, so this is, uh, this is Galilee, and this is where Jesus is from. And so what we see is that Jesus comes up, it appears that Jesus is down here, probably in this area, it says that John baptized near Jordan, so he's over here. After this, he moves up and he begins his ministry up in Galilee. Specifically, we're going to see him in this town called Capernaum, which sits right on the Sea of Galilee, which as you can see, isn't much of a sea, it's really a lake. Um, so this is, where, this is where our story is going to be taking place today. This other dot, by the way, is Nazareth, that's Jesus' hometown. So there, and then Capernaum becomes kind of his second hometown as we go through the Gospels. All right, now, we got to move, so we're going to try and go fast. I've asked Brock actually to read for us, so Brock, can you read chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 for me? Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And as Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. After going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee and the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right. So here's kind of how we see this story starting. Jesus goes and he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees this fisherman, Simon, whose other name is Peter, um, whose other name is Cephas. So um, primarily we know him as Peter. This is who he is. And so he sees Simon or he sees Peter and his brother Andrew. And then he seems, sees the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he calls them to follow him. And they just do it. Like this guy just walks up and says, follow me. And they're like, all right. And they just kind of do it and, and just start walking after him, which, which when you think about it, seems a little strange. They're like, they're in the middle of their day's work. They're, they're working there and they just get up and go. Why? Do these guys just follow this, this strange man who walks up and tells them to follow him wherever he's going? Well, there's, there's probably a few different things at play in this when we, when we take a look at it. First is the fact that Jesus seems to be by this time actually 
a, a teacher who is gaining some notoriety, a, a rabbi. And, and the Jewish, uh, when you grew up in a Jewish household, when you grew up in a Jewish family, your, your hope and your goal as you study the different levels of the scriptures and the Torah and went through the different levels of school is that you could one day get far enough to where you would know enough of the scriptures and be so well versed in it and be at the top of your class to where you would have the opportunity to follow a rabbi and sit at his feet and learn from him. You would go to him and ask if you could follow him and, and he may or may not let you. Most, most Jewish boys ended up just like James and John, just like Simon and Andrew. They don't make the cut far enough along and so they go back and they do the family business. So when a rabbi comes and calls you, that's actually a pretty big deal. And, and so it wouldn't have been quite as weird for them to want to do that. The other thing, actually, is if you read the book of John, this more than likely is not their first encounter with Jesus. He's, he's gained a little steam, but Andrew, it tells us in the book of John, was actually a disciple of John the Baptist first. So he's a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist one day sees Jesus coming, and he says, that right there, that's the Lamb of God to his disciples. And he says, I didn't even know it. The dude's my cousin. I didn't even know it. This is what's crazy. Um, until one day I saw the Spirit of God descend on him, and, and so that's him. And so there's a couple of them that are standing there, and they're just like, well, if that's what, what are we doing following you? And so they just they leave John the Baptist, and they just start walking after Jesus. And, and one of those guys is Andrew. Andrew goes and gets Simon. And so they already know him. They've already kind of watched his ministry. They've already seen it a little bit. And, and so they've already kind of are taken in by him. Andrew even says, I, I think we found the Messiah. Um, as everyone is kind of looking for him at that time. Also, Luke 5 tells us this, and Mark leaves it out, that actually Jesus doesn't just go up and say, hey, follow me. He actually, they're sitting there all day, and he says, hey, cast your nets in one more time. And they're like, yeah, we've been doing that all day. It's not really working out today. Um, it's not really the best day for that. Um, and so thanks for the fishing advice, carpenter, but we kind of know what we're doing, right? And so, but, but he does, they do it anyway, and they pull in this massive amount of, of fish, and, and that's when they go, holy cow, there's something, there's something different about this guy, and they start to follow him. There's another reason I think that Mark stresses their immediate following of him, but we'll get to that in just a bit. Brock, go ahead and read verses 21 through 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as not who had authority, and not as the scribes. Okay, so he goes into Capernaum there, and he walks into a synagogue. A synagogue would have been like a Jewish place of learning. Um, it would have been, so when we try to make a connection, the temple isn't really anything like what our churches are. The temple was the place where you go to make sacrifices for yourself, for the sins, for the people. The synagogue is a lot closer to what our modern day churches would be, the place where you would gather together to hear the word taught. And, and Jesus walks in there on the Sabbath and he teaches and it says that they're all astonished and they're all marveling at him. And the reason why is because he teaches as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Um, now, th there may be, and I think there might even be some like almost intangibleness to this that they can't even put their fingers on. Like, later on in Jesus' ministry, there's one point where the chief priests send these guards to go arrest Jesus, and the guards come back and they don't have Jesus, and the chief priests are like, what, what are you doing? Do you not understand? We said arrest him. It, why, why, aren't you, why don't you have him? And what the guards say is, you don't get it. Like, nobody teaches like this man. We've never heard anything like it. And so there's something when Jesus is teaching that has power to it, that has authority to it. But the other reason probably that they say he has authority, not like the scribes, is that what the scribes primarily did back then, the teachers of the law, were basically expounding on what the older teachers of the law had said about, what the older teachers of the law had said about the scriptures. And so what you're often doing back then is just kind of telling you what's been told and talking a little bit. Everybody teaches with the authority of the rabbi before them. Rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus shows up and says, I say this. And he teaches under his own authority. But there's another reason actually that he, he's noted to have authority when he teaches. And that comes right after this. Brock Reed verses 23 through 26. No, 28. 
their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Alright, so as Jesus is teaching, this demon-possessed man stands up and starts to speak, and, and he yells out at Jesus, and we see Jesus' power, the authority of his teaching, is about to be displayed in full, as he not only proclaims these truths, but then he ends up casting this demon out as well. So we mentioned last week that actually... We're in, Mark lets us in on a secret at the very beginning of his book when he says, this is the story of Jesus, the Son of God. Um, but, but as you'll read, nobody else in the story knows that. Not even his disciples, not even his closest followers know that he is the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, until halfway through the book. Um, nobody else knows, but the demons know. Every time the demons encounter him, they know exactly what's happening. And so we see it here. They see, we know who you are, he says, the Holy One of God. And yet, Jesus won't let him speak. And here's the question for us to think through for a little bit. Why? I don't need an answer. I just need you to think, why is it if, if Jesus is coming to the earth, and he's here to proclaim the good news, he's here to proclaim the gospel, wouldn't you think that he would want that shouted from the rooftops? I'm the Holy One of God. I'm the Anointed One. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. Nobody knows, and as soon as somebody says it, Jesus says, shut up. Why? Why would he do that? So this becomes... An issue there, some who thought back then actually was kind of understood by a lot of exorcists that one of the ways that you had power over somebody, control over a specific spiritual power like a demon or a false god, was to be able to know their name and to, and to correctly identify them and correctly pronounce it. So some think maybe that's what's going on when the demon is trying to identify Jesus. Obviously, pronouncing Jesus' name isn't going to help you a whole lot when you're fighting against him. So I don't think that that's what's going on. I think there's actually a bigger theme because we're going to see it take place throughout the rest of these stories that Jesus continually shuts this down. It's a theme. Another theme is this, that in spite of Jesus trying to shut the, the word and the message down, like it keeps growing and his fame continues to spread all throughout this region as Brock just read for us. Now read verses 29 through 34, Brock. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed with demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Hey, so after the synagogue, they go back to Peter, Peter's house. It actually says Peter and Andrew, probably the family, kind of living in an area together. They go back there and it says that Peter, Simon's uh, mother-in-law, is sick. She has a fever and, and this was a, a big deal. But Jesus walks in and immediately he heals her. And she gets up and begins to serve. And, and then it says, at sundown, everybody, the whole town starts coming down. Why? Why at sundown? Because it's the Sabbath. And the Jewish day works from sundown to sundown. So that means that the Sabbath starts Friday night. And the Sabbath ends Saturday night. And so people are waiting in their house and, and you can only travel so far on the Sabbath and you can only do so much work on the Sabbath and you can only go so many places on the Sabbath. But as soon as the sun goes down, it's no longer Sabbath. And so the crowd, it's like they're all just waiting at their doors for the sun to go down, right? And as soon as it goes down, they rush the house there because they know Jesus is there and word has spread about what happened in the synagogue earlier that day. And so they go there and He spends the night healing these people and casting out demons. It's worth 
recognizing here that Mark actually differentiates between healing sickness and casting out demons. So a, a lot of people read and they see, you know, all this talk of demons in the Gospels and it kind of weirds them out. And it just, uh, uh, one of the typical answers is to say, well, they had kind of a primitive understanding of things. And so they just thought, like, if a person was sick, if they had epilepsy, or if they had some disease, it was just a demon, because they didn't have, you know, science back then to be able to understand these things. And, and so it was clearly like they just don't get things. But Mark differentiates. He says, no, 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 I know what sick is, and there's sickness, and Jesus heals it. And there's demons, and he never uses the word heals for demons. It's always cast out. And so they, they differentiated between those things. They weren't idiots. Um, and so they saw a difference. Jesus goes after both and is able to control both. Again, we see he won't let the demons speak, though, because they know who he is. And so he won't let them talk as they go through these. Now, we're about to, to, to go into something slightly different. We're going to shift gears just a little bit. If you read this, and I had Brock read in the ESV, because the ESV is pretty literal. If you look down in the ESV, you'll notice that basically every sentence up until now has started with the word and. And, they, and Jesus went by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he called them. And they went into Capernaum, and then he went into a synagogue, and then he taught. And then a guy in a de- like a, with a demon came up, and then Jesus cast him out, and then Jesus went to this house. And, 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 and you get a lot of Mark's favorite word in there as well, which is what? Immediately, yeah, this happened, and this happened, and boom, 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 and Jesus is going, and going, and going, and Mark is kind of showing you how busy life is, and then everything shifts in this brief little section right here. Brock, read verses 35 through 39. And rising very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to, desolate, to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him. And said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Alright. So after Jesus spends the night healing all these people and doing all this work, doing his ministry, a busy day, says this, the first thing he does, he gets up really early in the morning while it's still dark and he sneaks away to pray. Very interesting. Very interesting. I think there's some significance there. And so he's out there praying, but then um, clueless Peter and the gang come looking for him. Actually, in the Greek, it doesn't say they come looking for him. It's a more aggressive word. It says they hunt him down. Right? So they come. They're, 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 so he's off praying, doing things, and Peter's like, hey, hey, where is he? Where is he? And they come out, Jesus, hello! Right? Like they can't. Don't you know everybody's looking for you? Um, so I have... I have three kids. I got uh, a daughter who's six, Ella. I got a son whose name is Hudson. He's four. And I got a little girl named Hadley. She's two. My son, Hudson, is four, and, and he's somewhat uh, socially clueless, all right? Socially oblivious, which is basically like he's a boy, so he'll be that way for the next 12 years, right? Um, but so this is just like this is kind of how he operates with no clue. The other day we're driving somewhere, um, to Chick-fil-A, we're taking them, and, and Ella, the oldest, is ticked because she didn't get the seat she wanted in the van, right? So she's crying halfway there, and she finally stops, but she's just fuming, sitting in the back, right? And so, like, every smart person knows when a six-year-old girl is fuming, you just leave her alone, okay? Actually, little tip for you guys, when a 20-year-old girl is fuming, okay, <laughs> You just leave her alone, okay? But, but Hudson doesn't know that, right? So he's sitting there, and Hudson decides it's a great time to share random useless information with Ella, right? <laughs> and so she's sitting there, and we're passing by Little Caesars, which they call the pizza shop. Um, and so they, for whatever reason, he's always excited about the pizza shop. So as we're driving past, she's sitting there like this, and Hudson's like, hey, Ella, there's the pizza shop. No, 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 it's, it's right there, because she's just sitting there like this. No, it's right there. You're missing it. You're missing it. No, it's out that window right there. Oh, you missed it. Okay? And, and she's, you know, right? Like just absolutely clueless. Absolutely clueless as to what's going on. This is what I picture like Peter and the disciples doing, right? Jesus, what are you doing? We're all, everyone wants to hang out, right? And, and coming to get there. This is what this one commentator, David Garland, says. Um, this episode is the first hint that the disciples will create more trouble for Jesus than support. 
right? And, and that really does end up being the issue. Like, Jesus doesn't call these guys because, like, he's desperately in need of some really talented guys, right? Like, that's, that's not why he calls them. He calls these guys who are socially clueless and backwards and, and all of those things and calls them to follow him and, and pours himself into them. And so that's what he does with them. And then he says, he stands up and says, in verse 38, a great purpose statement. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Answer that question in your head. And then ask yourself, did it match up with Jesus' answer in verse 38? Um, I'm not saying that this is the only reason He came. It's just worth, worth pointing out that Jesus says a big portion of the reason He's here is to preach and teach. And what is the main theme of His preaching and teaching? We talked about last week. To announce the kingdom. I came here to declare that the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom is coming. Now now again, I, He came to die. He came to save. He came to all these things. But He came to proclaim the kingdom. That becomes big for Him. Read verses 40 and 40, for, through 42, Brock. And a leper came to Him, imploring Him, and kneeling, said to Him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So we've seen Jesus heal and, and, and yeah, heal a number of his diseases and, and cast out demons. But here we see what, what was in some ways considered sort of the epitome of disease and sickness, and that is this idea of leprosy. Um, leprosy doesn't, like, so what we call leprosy today is Hansen's disease, and this idea where you start to lose, like, nerve feeling, and that, that causes injuries to, to rot without you knowing it and get infected and all those things, and so that's, that's part of this stuff, but, but leprosy really was kind of a large term that could cover a number of different skin diseases that a person might have. Leprosy was huge because it basically, it, it was one of the most devastating things a person could have. It didn't just affect them physically, but it actually, according to Leviticus 13 and 14, that's like a spiritual issue as well, because it says that when a person has leprosy, they're declared unclean. That is, ceremonially unfit to participate in the worship of Yahweh. Ceremonially unfit to live amongst the people of God. That they're actually supposed to live outside the camp, lest they get somebody else unclean ceremonially. Like, like you got unclean when you were around a dead body and you had to go through a whole ritual and all that stuff. Same could be said for being around a leprous, like a leprous person. It's, it's like, like, a, like a walking dead person. And, and they literally had to walk around shouting, covering their mouth and shouting, unclean, unclean. This is what it says in Leviticus 13 and 14. So that everybody would know to, to not go anywhere near them. And so this is devastating physically, it's devastating um, religiously, it's devastating socially, because you're now an outcast in a community, and this is in a society that is built around community, and you've got nothing, and, and this person is, is desperate, and they're in a desperate spot, and so he braves it and goes to Jesus, probably shouldn't even be there, shouldn't be around where anybody is, but he goes to Jesus comes to him and, and, and more than likely as this man approached Jesus, the rest of the crowd and the disciples around him just cleared out. Like it would have just opened up, like parting the sea, because nobody wants to be around this guy. And he comes to Jesus and he says, can you heal me? Can you make me clean? In fact, he says, I believe you can. Second Kings 5 actually kind of gives us a clue of how big a deal this is. When Naaman, who's, an, who's a Syrian soldier, Syrian general, goes to the king of Israel because he's told maybe somebody there could heal him. And so he goes to the king and he's like, "Will you? could you heal me? This is what the king says. Like, who do you think I am? Am I God? Like, do I have the ability to kill someone and raise them back to life? That's how big leprosy was. That's how impossible that was considered to, to be able to deal with. So he's like, I can't do this. What do you, who do you think I am? The man ends up going to Elisha. And you, if you went to Sunday school, you know the story. Elisha does not come out to touch him. 
but Elisha tells him to go and dip himself in the Jordan seven times and he's healed. There's another instance where someone gets leprosy. It's Miriam, which is Moses' sister, when she speaks against Moses as, Lord, as Yahweh's kind of chosen one. And, and when that happens, she gets leprosy and it's, it's terrifying. And then Moses asks God, will you please heal her? So those two times happen, but, but in both of those, Elisha never comes out and touches the person. Moses only asks God. Jesus does neither of those things. Jesus actually stretches out his hand. I love what the leper says. If you will, you can make me whole. And Jesus says, I will. I want it. And it's happening. And then he reaches out to touch him. And you would have heard the collective gasp of the people around them. Because you don't touch lepers. Like you, you don't, that makes you unclean. You're ceremonially unclean now. You're unfit for the worship of, of Yahweh in that moment. But that, that's actually only true when you're a sinful, broken person. Then uncleanliness can pass from one person to another. But when you're absolute holiness, it works the opposite way around. And cleanliness goes across and this man is in an instant healed and made whole right there in front of Jesus Jesus tells him, actually we'll read it here to go, see the priest, read Brock, read verses uh, 43 through 45. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded and for a proof of them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him for every quarter. Okay, so uh, according to Leviticus 13:14, if you at any time had a skin disease, the only way you're welcome back in is you have to go to the priest, they have to examine you and declare you to be clean. And so that's what Jesus is saying. In accordance with what Moses commanded, go visit the priest, but Jesus also says this, don't tell anybody else. Just the priest. Now, it doesn't matter. The guy goes off and he tells everybody else. And, and things kind of go crazy from there. So, back to this question we asked a little bit ago. Why? why? Why doesn't Jesus want people to know? Why doesn't he want people to know what he's doing? Why doesn't he want people to know who he is? Why does he keep this thing, what some people call, they call it Mark's Messianic Secret? Why do we see this so often um, in, in the Gospel of Mark that, that, that Jesus is keeping this secret about himself. Let me offer you kind of a few reasons why I think that is the case. The first is this, because it tends to hinder the work that he's trying to do. We just actually saw that in verse 45. So much fame spread about him that he couldn't actually even like operate in towns. He had to go out into the wilderness and people were still flocking to him everywhere from there. So it hinders the work a little bit. When, when news about his miracles spread, when news about who he might be spread. Um, the other reason is this, I believe, and, and Jesus makes a case for this in all his Gospels a lot, that like, he's not there to do like, magic tricks for them. And, and a lot of people get way more excited about the miracles than the power behind the miracles or the one performing the miracles, and that's not what Jesus is here for, to get you excited about spectacular things. Um, he's, he's there for you to see Him rightly, to know who He is, to, to rightly identify Him. And, and that leads me to the third reason why Jesus doesn't let news about Him get out. And that is because I believe that for people to see Jesus as the Messiah back then actually led them further away from properly understanding who He was. Because we talked about this last week. The concept of a Messiah in first century Judaism was a political like war hero who was going to come raise up a band of followers and revolutionaries who were going to overthrow Rome and, and who was going to conquer through, through battle, through victory, through bloodshed. And Jesus came to conquer, but not through that way. We talked about it last week. This is the simple outline of the book of Mark. Chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is the Messiah. Chapters 8, starts midway through 8, through 16, the Messiah must suffer. And nobody gets that. 
And, and Jesus, I think, knows that, that when people hear Messiah and they see Him, that they won't be seeing Him properly. And so he kind of keeps this in check. So here's one question as we kind of find our way out. How do all of these stories tie together? Why is it that Mark strings them along so connected? Why is it that he uses this word and in between all of them to kind of say that it's all one thing that's taking place? How does this all come together? First of all, this passage is really just a great summary of Jesus' ministry. And so this kind of shows what his ministry is about. Calling disciples, preaching and teaching, casting, disciples, or casting out demons, healing disease. And so we see all of these things taking place, and it's a great summary of that. But I think Mark is trying to show us more than that, and, and namely it's this. Mark is trying to demonstrate for us the incredible authority of Jesus in this passage. That's the big exclamation that everybody makes when they see him. Like, like... Who teaches with authority like this? Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's saying? Do you hear his words? And so Mark strings these together and catch how these passages go. Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee. He says, follow me, and immediately people obey. Jesus walks into a synagogue and he begins teaching, and immediately people go, there is power here that we have not heard before. Jesus casts or commands a demon to leave a man and immediately it leaves. Jesus walks into a house with a fever and other sicknesses around and heals it immediately. Jesus touches a leopard and says, I want the leprosy gone and it goes. What Jesus wants happens. What Jesus speaks takes place. And Mark is outlining this for us is highlighting for us the incredible authority of Jesus that where he goes and what he does happens out of his authority but don't connect don't disconnect the authority that's outlined in this from verses 14 and 15 that's what we read at the very beginning the kingdom of God is near So what this authority is, it's actually a demonstration of the kingdom power. This is the difference between, say, like, Jesus and us. Um, That actually, Jesus is not the only person in history to show up and say the kingdom of God is near. Actually, people have been doing that for 2,000 years since he came. But Jesus is actually the only person who didn't just announce the kingdom, he actually, he actualized it. He, he didn't just say the kingdom is coming, he brought the kingdom. Like he, he made it happen wherever he went. And that's what we see here is Jesus coming and he's actually everywhere he goes overpowering the kingdom of darkness as he casts out demons and as he undoes uh, the brokenness of sin, sickness, death, all of those things fade away and get overpowered by Jesus in his coming to them. So his authority is something that, that is given to him to bring the kingdom. And this is where I really do need to kind of clarify something I said last week. Last week I made this statement that as followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit in us, that when you go somewhere, the kingdom goes with you. When you step into your apartment, the kingdom of God is there. When you step into your classroom, the kingdom of God is there. That's still true. I still stand by that. But, but I don't want you to get the wrong impression that somehow the kingdom rests on your shoulders. That, that somehow it's you that's bringing the kingdom. No, no, what you're doing, the reason the kingdom is there, it's really you displaying the kingdom by your submission to the king. It's really you showing the reality that is already present. But when Jesus comes, he's not just showing it, he is the kingdom. He is making the kingdom happen. Jesus is the only full one who brought the kingdom when he came, who continues to bring the kingdom of God on earth today, and who one day will bring the kingdom to completion as everything is found to be under God's rule and control again, as justice and truth and healing will reign on this earth once again because Jesus is the one with all the authority. He is the one that doesn't just proclaim the kingdom, he makes it happen. Um, we're going to take a break for just a couple minutes and then we're going to dive back in on one of those passages that we kind of move through really quickly. So you got two minutes. Bathroom's back there through the kitchen if you need to, to go there, but stand up and stretch wherever. So. Last week, Drew mentioned something uh, uh, in regards to this, this, this value that we have back on the wall. Integrated faith. Okay, this is huge for us. This is huge for you. 
in college. To have integrated faith. A faith that says, it's not just about, faith that's not just important to you when you are at the table or when you're on Sunday mornings or whatever. But a faith that is integrated in every part of your life, in every area of your life. Recognizing that God wants every part of you. He wants all of you. He wants, wants your whole life. He wants you to give that to Him. Um, he wants you to, to, to die to self and let Him live through you in, in every relationship, in every circumstance, in every, everywhere you are. And so He, he gave this line that, that, that we want to be like imprinted in your head this year. Is, is kind of a, it's a practical bridge to how to live out um, integrated faith. And it's simply this. Be faithful where you are. Be faithful to God where God has you. Be faithful where you are. So I want to ask the question, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be faithful where you are? How, how do we do that? Uh, I think we could talk about, we could, we could uh, examine it, define it, we can understand it in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think it just simply means like doing what God would want you to do wherever you are. Right? Doing what God wants in whatever relationship you're in, in whatever conversation you're having, in whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in. It's saying, okay, God, I'm, I'm here, and so I want to be available to you and used by you. I want to do whatever you want me to do. I think most of us would say, yeah, yeah, that's probably, probably good. I, my experience with, with, with Christians primarily, generally, is this. That a lot of times, we, we know that we know maybe what, what is expected of us, we don't always know how to live in that on a regular basis. And so, if I were to ask you, well, how do you, how, how do you know what God wants you to do? How are you supposed to know that? Let's, let's keep peeling this onion back a little further. How do you know what God would want you to do in that moment? Anybody ever... Get into a situation, you've, you've read some of the Bible, but you get into a situation and you're like, okay, it's not computing. I don't, I don't know how to translate that verse to this situation. So I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say here. I don't know how to act here. And so Jesus, um, in, this, in this section, gives us something that I, I believe to be incredibly um, humbling and and inspiring, and and very practical, too. So, Drew was describing um, this this story, and 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 man, Mark is on the move, and and so Mark is highlighting and and summarizing what Jesus's early ministry is like, and he is on the move. He's he's calling disciples, he is casting out demons, he's teaching and preaching in the synagogues, he is healing. Um, Diseases and mother-in-laws of all people, and the sick and the oppressed, and and people are pounding on the door to get in to see him, and he's healing, and he's right. And then, and then Mark gives us Mark, who has Jesus on the move, on mission. Everything is immediate. All of a sudden, depicts and 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 shows Jesus getting up early while it was still dark and getting away to pray. Now, why would Jesus need to do that? Like, I understand why I need to do that. I think I know why you need to do that. But why would Jesus need to do that? Like, why would Jesus need to get up early and go talk to God? He is God. So how does that prayer go? Dear me, um... I pray in me. Um, I give me authority to do what I'm going to do in my name. Amen. You know, I mean, what does that, what does that look like? Like, what does he say to God? Why would, he, why would he choose to do that? I don't think he's doing that to set an example, although I think he does. I don't think he's primarily doing that to, well, one day there's going to be a bunch of people in Stillwater, Oklahoma that are going to need to know. They need to get away. They need to pray. You guys need to pray, so I'm going to get up early and go demonstrate this. Somebody, mark, somebody write this down. You know, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus was motivated by something that we need to be motivated by. 
I think Jesus understood something that I want us to understand. That I that I that I hope um, that since we're early enough on in the semester, that you can you can begin to think about and and incorporate into your life this this life of a meeting with Jesus, meeting with the Lord, and getting away and and praying and and hearing from the Father. And so. Why would Jesus need to do that? Now, this isn't the only time He does this. Actually, Mark, um, in, if, you, if you were to take all of the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay? The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not, not John. If you take the synoptics and you put those together and, and you, you add up all the stories, there's about 11 to 12 times where Jesus gets away and prays. Um, half of those times He's praying alone. Other times He takes people with Him. Like, like some of the disciples. but So this isn't just a once in a while kind of thing. This seems to be a very consistent part of his life. Which I'll talk about in a second. Um, that, it, that there's something in his life already incorporated in, in, the, in the Jewish life that we are missing in our life. But, but this, this also happens. So Mark depicts, I'll, I'll just pick out three of the times where he gets alone, just gets alone to pray. And it's here, Mark one thirty-five. It's also Mark 6.46. Turn there. Mark 6.46. Actually, put your finger on, Mark, on, on verse 46 and, and look at verse 30 and 31. This is kind of interesting. Um, I, I didn't really realize this until studying this today. Um, the, it says, the apostle, this is Mark 6.30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done. So He had sent them out. So they come back. Told Him all that, that they had done and taught. And He said to them, come away by yourselves to, to a desolate place and rest, and rest a while. So this is Jesus saying to His disciples who just got back, saying, come on, let's get away. Let's go away and let's rest. Okay, that's, I think that's worth taking note. But look what happens. We're not going to read the whole section. What's the heading of this, of this little paragraph? He feeds 5,000. So, he, they start to head that way. Um, they see all these people. They have compassion. right? The people run around, and, and they run around the lake, meet them on the other side, and he's there. Jesus has compassion on them. He starts to preach to them, teach to them, and he says, hey, let's feed them. And he feeds the 5,000. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And then... He sends the disciples away on the boat, and he stays, finishes, and then verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain, on the mountain, to pray. And this is this is that account where the disciples are on the lake, and he comes and walks out to them. That's that's 6:46. Now turn to Mark 10. 35. 10.35, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is when Jesus is about to be betrayed. Um, Judas is about to meet Him. In verse 35, and going a little further, He fell on the ground and He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will. So Mark chooses, Mark who has Jesus on the move, um, accomplishing his mission, has Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, right in the middle of his ministry, and at the very end of his ministry, Jesus getting alone and praying. Um, now, here is, here is something that we see pattern actually in our text. Okay, so if you want to turn back to Mark chapter 1. Right, Jesus is on mission. That's clear. He's come preaching the kingdom. But how does He choose to live out this mission? It's, it's almost the same question as, how do, you, how do you remain faithful where you are? How does Jesus live on mission? And, and in this story, we, we begin to see He does at least He does two things. 
in, in, in order to stay on mission. In order to be faithful to what God has called him to do. He does two things. He spends time with God, gets alone with God, and he lives in community. So we see him calling his first disciples. He calls them. He, he, he has the authority to say, listen, I don't want to just tell you something nice and new. I want, to, I want to invite you into my life and come with me and we're going to live on mission together. So this is Jesus. This is what I believe to be a maybe an oversimplified way of describing Jesus' ministry. But it's solitude with God in community on mission. It's, it's, it's time with God in community. He's, he's, he lives in community on mission. So I, I want to throw that back to you. So what does that look like for you? If you want to, ask, if you want to answer this question, how do, I, how do I remain faithful to God where I am? I want to ask you, like, when are you getting alone with God? Because if you want to know what God wants you to do, wouldn't it make sense that you would need to spend time with Him? That you would need to hear from Him? That you would need to be filled by Him in order to like, pour out. Because if you haven't learned already, college is going to drain you. Um, how many of you are already ready to like, run for the hills, get a cabin in the woods, and just live peacefully the rest of your life? I know Eric Sheets would, and I know several of you would follow him. Um, but that's not what God's called you. That's not where He has you right now. He has you in college. He has you here for a purpose. You're learning something. He's preparing you for something. And, and if you don't spend time with Him, then how, how in the world would you know what He would want you to do in any given relationship or conversation or situation? So some of you have, have questions. You have um, you're worried about, okay, what am I going to do here? How am I going to do this? What am I going to say here? I wish that Drew and I and Rachel and whoever could just give you all the answers, but it's not even remotely, remotely possible. The, the, the deal is, you, you spend time with God. You trust God. You let Him pour into you. And I'll, I'll talk specifically about how in a second. But you let Him pour into you. You let Him give you um, what He needs you to have, what He knows you need. And you walk faithfully with Him. And then you live in community with others. You, you, you let your life be open to others so they can see you and know you and, um, and you can do the same. You see, in solitude, in community, on mission. So what, what is it that stops you from... From doing this. I love this. There's a parable in Matthew. In fact, if you want to turn there, Matthew 13. There's something I want to read real quick. Matthew 13. It's the parable of the seeds and the sower. The sower sows these seeds. The seeds land on the path. They land on the rocky ground. They land on thorns. And then, and then, then some land on the good soil. Four different, four different types. Four different um, places they land. And Jesus goes to explain that in verse 18. And he says, actually start at verse 19, he says, here's, here's the explanation. When anyone hears the word of the king, kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, that is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures it for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but, care, but, but the cares of this world, catch this one, he hears it, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, and in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So I, I love this parable because it is a reminder to me, if 
fruit isn't happening in my life, there's probably a reason. And, and I would say for most of us, we allow our, our schedules to be so packed that we don't make room um, to clear the ground and, 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 and prepare the soil for God to speak into our life. And so, I, I believe that having a disciplined life is, is key. Like practicing spiritual disciplines. Discipline, a spiritual discipline is simply um, something that I can do, that only I can do, that God allows me to do, He gives me to do, so that God can do what only He can do. These are practices like prayer and fasting and, and spending time in community and confession and serving and all these things. These are things that only I can do that allows God to do what only God can do in my life, to transform me, to shape me, to mold me. And, and it requires us giving control to Him. So, I want to ask you, like, what would it look like um, for you? What is the place for you? When for you? Um, and here in a moment, I'm going to give you some time to think about that, but I want to illustrate this, why I think this is important with this illustration. A few years ago, um, someone showed this to me, and it was profoundly, uh, it was really, really impactful for me. Helpful, help, helped me see and understand how this works. So, so you and I are a cup, like this table cup. This was last year. If you weren't here, you missed out. Um, you and I are a cup. And when, uh, this, I believe this is the way God's wired us. Okay, when, when, when we are full, okay, when God, when God fills us up, we start to pour in to others. Now, this next saucer, you, can't, you may not be able to see it. There's a cup, there's a saucer, and there's a plate. Okay? The cup is us. Those of you in the back, you can stand up if you want. The cup is us. The saucer is your, your, your roommates, your family your closest friends, maybe the people in your table group. Like these are the people that God's put in your life that you interact with on a regular basis. These are the people that, that He wants you to know. He's put in your life for a reason. And so when, you, when God pours into you and He fills you up and you begin to pour out into others, notice what happens. You don't ever empty. You, you don't become empty. Um, you, you pour out in others. And, and as you pour out, and God pours into you and you pour into your immediate community, God pours into the extended community, which could be the table ministry, which could be, whoa, we're getting full, the church, which could be the city, which could be wherever God takes you. And I believe this is the way that God has wired us to live and, and to work. Um, but most of us, I'm not going to pour water into this, but most of us live like, like this cup with holes on the bottom. And, and we're still in a community. We're still, we still know people that God's pouring into, that God can use us. But this is how I did ministry for about 10 years. I'm not going to do it. But I pour water in here, and it starts to pour out into others. But I'm always empty. It's because I'm not allowing God, I'm not allowing time for God to speak into my life. I'm not clearing the ground. I'm not preparing the soil. I'm just, I'm just, I'm living on empty, but I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. And I think this is what the way God wants you to live. Now, um, this life, this kind of life, I think, takes discipline, like I said. And, and for some of you, you're just beginning, and others of you, You've been, you've been growing in this discipline of spending time with God, and it looks like a, a million different ways, and we can talk about that specifically. Um, but we've given you, actually, this in this study through Matthew, we've given you a kind of a way to walk through th Mark, not Matthew, walk through Mark, section by section, and spend each day reading a few verses a day, asking simple questions about the text, and letting God speak to you through it. And that's just one 
very practical way that you can spend time with God, let Him pour into you, and let God continue to pour out, uh, use you, and, and, pour, and work through you. Now, here's what we're going to do. While these um, three people come up, we're going to spend some time in worship. And so we're going to give you, I want to give you about three minutes um, to think about when and where. Okay? And what. When and where and what. For you, for this semester, you, you know a little bit of your schedule. You know what's going on in your life. When could this be for you? When could you spend some time with God? Where would it be? Is it a coffee shop? Is there a certain tree on the, on the campus? Is it your hammock? Is it whatever? Where, is it, where would it be? And, and what will you do? So, spend some time, spend three minutes or so, and then we will continue on and sing.